Hi, this is Lauren Flynn, host of Under the Gavel. I'm recording this introduction on Wednesday, April 4th, 2018. This episode will be a little bit different because this morning, as I was cleaning up my conversation with the UT's court reporter Pauline Reppert about last week in court, the jury reached a verdict. The jury found Adam Shacknai, Rebecca Zahau's boyfriend's brother, and the person who called 911, legally responsible for her 2011 death. The jury found that Adam Shacknai must pay Zahau's family $5 million for the loss of Zahau's love and companionship, plus $167,000 for the loss of financial support she would have provided her mother and siblings. After the verdict was read, the judge excused the jury and took a break, which allowed Zahau's family and their attorney to take some time to determine whether or not they wanted to seek punitive damages. They're expected to come back into court this afternoon to discuss that with the judge and the defense. We'll have another episode with the outcome of that portion of the day, plus any more time spent in court tomorrow. So from this point on in the episode, you'll be hearing what Pauline and I recorded last week. We talked about things that happened before closing arguments and before the verdict. Just keep that in mind. Also, if this is your first time listening to Under the Gavel, I would recommend listening to the very first episode. That's when we talk about the background of the case and what happened seven years ago that led up to this point. Public safety reporter Gary Worth was in court Monday, March 26th. Our court reporter Pauline Rappard reported on the defense's final experts on Tuesday, March 27th. So we're in our last week of trial? Um, yes. Or, yes. Yeah. After a month of testimony, the case wrapped up on Tuesday with the um, last witness. And... What happened? Let's let's start. Let's go back to Monday. Mm-hmm. What happened on Monday? Who did we hear from? Yeah, on Monday there were two defense experts, one on knots and the other a pathologist who weighed in on the subject of the autopsy. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, the county's official autopsy declared Rebecca Zhao to be a suicide. Right. Um, this um, person that the defense called on that topic was... Um, Dr. Gregory Davis from the University of Kentucky College of Medicine, and he testified that he thought the county's autopsy report, as he said, it was one of the finest I've Hmm. come across in my career. Um, He agreed with the conclusions that the medical evidence showed uh, suicide and not homicide. There had been a second autopsy performed at the request of Zahau's family. Mm-hmm. It was done by a Dr. Cyril Wecht. By the time he got to the witness stand uh, in, in court a couple of weeks ago, he declared it to be homicide. Mm-hmm. Um, so on, on Monday, Dr. Davis uh, said he disagreed. He did not think that Rebecca had been strangled before she was um, put over the side of a balcony with a noose around her neck. Mm-hmm. Uh, the theory being that that was just a uh, just staged to make it look like a suicide. Right. The other witness on Monday was the not expert. Another not expert. Another one. Yeah. The first one had been put on by the plaintiffs mm-hmm. to um, say that the the knots used on the ropes that bound Rebecca's hands and feet were of nautical origins. Mm -hmm. Um, On Monday, uh, Robert Krisnall, 
said he did not agree with that. He didn't think they were nautical in, in particular at all. And the reason that the nautical issue comes up is that Adam Shacknai makes his living as a tugboat captain and pilot. Right. And obviously he's familiar with nautical Mm -hmm. knots. So he's the, this new witness said that it was, they were not nautical knots. Right. What kind of knots were they? Were there, were they any specific kind of knots? Well, um, he he said they that they were loose and he called them haphazard, mm. um, indicating that kind of anybody could have maybe looped them around in a in a manner that they ended up on with mm-hmm. Rebecca Zhao, um, and he was given a length of rope in court and mm. um, showed that he could follow the lines of the knots on Rebecca's hands and he could do that with his hands in front of him, which he did do. He stood up in court and did that and that he could pull one of his hands out of the bindings, put both hands behind his back, slip his hand back into the knot and then tighten it down. Um, But he said it wasn't very tight, that it was actually what he considered loose and he Mm. said he'd seen that in other suicides where people had bound themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, he said that out of 30 suicides he's been called into on cases, 10 of those had tied themselves up mm. uh, first. Um, so he said, uh, another phrase was that he had never seen a suicide where the knots weren't loose and haphazard. Mm. And he had never seen a homicide in which the knots were not tight. Hmm. Um, now, the experts have said that the knots around her ankles were more tight, um, that that they had to actually be cut off hmm. for the autopsy to be conducted, whereas the ones around her hands did indeed slip off. And, and that would make sense. It's easier to tie ropes around your feet or ankles than it is around your own hands. Right. At that point, you've got both hands free to do what mm-hmm. you're trying to do. So, you know, there's there's two experts out there now taking opposite sides mm-hmm. of the, of the matter. It's got to tough for the jury. It, it would have to. Um, you know, both, both men had good credentials. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, and that's exactly what it'll be up to the jury to decide is which one was more believable. Right. Dr. Davis remained on the stand through the Tuesday testimony mm-hmm. as well. So then that brings us to Tuesday. Right. The final right. day in court. Yeah. He he stayed on the stand and, and, and kind of reiterated what he'd said the day before was that he didn't see any extra injuries that seemed consistent with homicide. Hmm. On Tuesday, he was asked about the four little hemorrhages Mm. on Rebecca's scalp. Um, The plaintiffs have suggested that those were inflicted by blows to her head by some kind of a blunt object that Mm -hmm. wasn't sharp. This Dr. Davis said that hemorrhages as small as these were have been known to be inflicted during the autopsy itself, Mm. that when the um, surgeon is peeling the scalp back with a scalpel and fingers, that that activity could easily create the four little um, hemorrhages, little blood vessels that are 
that are full of you know more right more full of blood and, and may break um and from what i've heard it seems like these hemorrhages are where it sounds like they're small they were they and were I, when you're when someone is struck on the head with a blunt object often those if it's if it's enough or a big enough or a hard enough blow to knock them out it's often mm-hmm. much larger and the pathologists have did not say they found any kind of um like swelling on top of the head to indicate mm-hmm. from a blow or any big area of bruising mm-hmm. to go with it this was all under the skin mm. and nothing apparent on top of the skin gotcha so um, that would suggest mm-hmm. once the skin was removed right that that's when they the were right gotcha right it, okay. it seems a little stronger in that direction but mm-hmm. um, again the jury will decide yeah. on on tuesday there was also a clinical psychologist who said that he is also considered a suicideologist <laughs> and for more than a decade he was the executive director of the American Association of Suicidology interesting which means the study of suicide right. and the purpose of that association was to help understand and therefore prevent suicides his name is Dr. Alan Berman he's an adjunct professor at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore and he said that in his 50-year career as a clinical psychologist, he has conducted thousands of suicide risk assessments. Um, Is that That would post- be interviewing, no, those would be oh. interviewing living people about the conditions in their life and what's going on I in see. their heads. Um, but the, the thing that was more pertinent to this case was he said he's also done hundreds of risk assessments after a death I see. and analyzing retrospectively what was going on in that person's life mm-hmm. um, and any evidence or people that knew what they were thinking. Mm-hmm. He said typically he would get those uh, requests by family members who are right. just trying to figure out why did their loved one do mm-hmm. away with themselves. And so he looks into their life and And thinking, those are, are those confirmed suicides with... Um, suicide notes and everything well no nobody asked him about mm-hmm. all the hundreds whether each one was confirmed mm-hmm. but i mean, after the fact i'm i'm guessing you know that he felt confident that those right. were yeah to include them and how often are how often is it is it ambiguous or how often is it as ambiguous as this case oh right yeah very rarely i would imagine right right yeah, he he admitted that he couldn't answer questions like how many child abuse victims mm-hmm. commit suicide and right. how many domestic violence victims commit mm-hmm. suicide because you can't know the number of those people. You, you, there's no way to know how many people out there in the world right. have been victims of child abuse mm-hmm. or domestic violence. Um, You can only know the ones that come forward or have that on some kind of a report Mm -hmm. or record. And and he certainly wouldn't have access to all of those cases. He would have only his own. True. Um, That brings up the point of they brought up a sexual abuse 
or right. physical abuse yeah. towards that Rebecca Yeah, suffered. right. Her sister had testified a little bit about it, and, and lawyers had mentioned that when Rebecca was a small child, I think maybe six or eight years old, mm. that the school principal fondled her inappropriately, mm. and that um, I don't, I think her sister said they never told her parents about mm-hmm. it. I believe that's okay. correct. Because that was the, that was the first that I had heard of this. Right, right. And then there was mention too of her husband having made threats of violence and, mm-hmm. and, and actually laying his hands on her at one point. Oh. So, so this clinical psychologist testified that either of these things can be devastating to people and have long-term effects through their whole life. And he couldn't establish a percentage, but he said people with those in their backgrounds are at greater risk Mm -hmm. for suicide later in their lives. Um, There's a number of considered chronic conditions in people's lives that wouldn't necessarily mean they are going to commit suicide, but they would be more likely than people who had not Mm. suffered through these things right and then in uh, other traumas you know the loss of other loved ones or divorce Mm. or you know any kind of losses in those areas being separated from your family i'm sure right can feel like a loss right right and And she was separated for a number of years yeah and um diagnosed depression seems obvious to Mm. us that that could was Rebecca diagnosed with depression? No, she wasn't. Okay. She wasn't. And her family has said that she wasn't. There was a question about whether she had complained about losing weight. Um, she had mm. said 10 pounds, and others have said the autopsy showed that she had really was had lost only 5 pounds. Um, so that sort of set up a contention. Is, is losing 10 pounds of weight indicative that you are not in a good, healthy mm state, but is losing five pounds, does that mean anything? Right. Um, So let me just ask to clarify, is this saying that she was attempt, she was trying to lose some weight and she was upset that she didn't lose as much as she had intended or that she had lost more weight than was healthy because maybe she was depressed. Mm-hmm. Um, the implication for the defense certainly was that 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 she was depressed and not mm, eating I well. Um, okay. the, I, I think some of the things that she wrote in memos and notes herself on her phone certainly gave some indications saying that she felt empty in life mm-hmm. and that she didn't know where the relationship with Jonah Shackney was going, her boyfriend. Um, that his two ex-wives hated her, Mm. um, that his teenage children, especially daughter, were giving trouble to her. Um, And I I think in one of those, she mentioned losing weight. Mm. And it was in a context of, uh, you know, also not being able to sleep well. So there was just an overall feeling that she was not in a good, healthy mental state at the time she was writing those things. And did those have dates on them? Um, they were within a couple of months of her okay. death. All right, so the different dates on different ones, they right? Relevant, right? Right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, in one place she wrote, she has no one to talk to. Hmm. Um, 
which, you know, she had her sister and, and mother, but I guess maybe the things that were going on in her head, she didn't want to talk maybe. to them about it. And when you're far away from someone, it's like, I know I have friends who live all over the country and, you know, you know, sometimes it feels weird to like reach out to them constantly mm-hmm. because yeah. they're not there and they have their own lives going on. And so that I would imagine mm-hmm. that is also a factor of like, not wanting to confide in mm-hmm. someone who lives far away about issues because you don't want to burden them when they can't do anything from so far away. True. Yeah. Yeah. The psychologist also said that kind of the top as he phrased it was the straw that broke the camel's back mm-hmm. was um, the fatal injury to her right. boyfriend's six-year-old son, Max. And the clinical psychologist said, yes, with all the other things going on in her mind, to get this word I, again, he said it would be the the straw that broke the camel's back sure. that um, he said at, at this point, she was at very high risk for suicide hmm. and he kind of ended his testimony by saying uh, kind of a, a typical scientific phrase that to a reasonable degree of scientific certainty, hmm. she died by suicide I see. And he then he added, that is my opinion. Mm-hmm. And that's what he was there for, to offer right. his opinion. So with that, the um, the defense rested its case. It did not, did not put any other witnesses on the stand. There had been an understanding that he would be putting on Dr. Jonathan Lucas from the County Medical Examiner's Office mm-hmm. to discuss the official autopsy results and conclusions, and the, but he did not do that. The, was that the medical ex- examiner who performed the autopsy? Right. Right. The original uh, autopsy? Right. And um, that, and Dr. Lucas was not called to the stand. Hmm. Um, so it was kind of like Dr. Davis as a pathologist was sort of a substitute in that regard. And Dr. Davis was not involved in the initial right. investigation. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah. You know, the defense attorney definitely went after both the experts and especially the the psychologist with the expertise in suicide. And um, Keith Greer, the plaintiff's attorney, asked him, well, what about positive factors in Rebecca's life mm-hmm. that would make her less likely for suicide? Did you account for those? And Dr. Davis said, you know, the, again, the, the, the ones he knew about from what he'd read of the reports, he did think about them, but he thought they were outweighed by the other factors. Mm. So that that marked the end of the testimony in the case. That was Tuesday. They took an extra break on Wednesday. Mm-hmm. Um, courts were closed Friday. And so on Monday, the lawyers are scheduled to summarize their cases in what are called closing arguments. Mm-hmm. It's their last argument to the jury that that my experts and my witnesses are persuasive and the other guys are not. Mm -hmm. What happens then? Well, when they're done, it goes to the jury. Um, Depending on what hour of the day, they may be sent to the jury room to deliberate on Monday, or if the arguments go all day, um, they may start in on Tuesday morning. Mm. Now, the other thing is there'll be a lengthy time of the juries getting their legal instructions from the judge. Okay. The lawyers... Um, are working um, possibly today, you know, at, uh, all extra hours to 
determine what the instructions should be that the jurors will get, mm -hmm. and then the judge has to approve those. So that could actually take up part of Monday and, and Tuesday just for that before the jury actually goes away to deliberate. Can I ask, do you know, to me it sounds like jury instruction from the judge just seems like a standard, here's the law, here's what you have to do, but the the, the lawyers are coming up with this right they're so going through yeah they're going through law books and jury instructions and their own knowledge and trying to decide which of the you know, potentially thousands of instructions on mm. endless numbers of laws i see the jury should hear which ones are relevant mm. now the the this is a civil case and the one cause of action against adam shacknai is wrongful death mm -hmm. and then there's the the lawsuit says we believe that you did this thing and that thing and the second cause of action is battery mm -hmm. and that's because the lawyers believe he strangled her to death manually mm -hmm. and then made things try to look like a suicide um so the the jurors are going to have to know what a wrongful death means mm -hmm. um whether it means premeditated, whether it could be not premeditated, mm. whether it could mean accidental, you know, all these things will, the lawyers are going to have to sort through of mm. what the jury is supposed to think wrongful death means mm -hmm. and then what they do about it. You know, if somebody could potentially say, well, I think it was murder and someone else, oh, I bet he did it accidentally in a rage, um, do those fit wrongful death definitions? Mm. Would they have to agree to come to terms with that I or see. not? Um, the same with battery. You know, do they agree that he struck blows on her head and that's battery? Mm. Do they agree that strangulation happened? Or do they think she wasn't strangled, but she was battered on the head? Mm. Um, so they'll, mm. they'll have it's to... It's very complicated. Right. And, and then just filling in the forms correctly... Um, there was a recent criminal case in which the jury just did not follow the instructions on how to fill out their own verdict forms. Hmm. Uh, they they took a vote on whether the panel believed the victim in the case had been killed, but the jury didn't agree on how they'd been killed. Some of them thought it was murder and some thought it was manslaughter. Okay. But the jury presented it to the judge as if those two things were the same and they weren't. Um, they were would have been separate on the jury verdict forms. Mm -hmm. um, so it's going to be a long process. When do you anticipate that we'll have a verdict? Can you anticipate? Oh, boy. <laughs> the jurors have got a lot of evidence to mm -hmm. go through. They've got a lot of photographs from the scene of Rebecca, of knots, of bruises, of hemorrhages, they have a lot of diagrams pointing mm -hmm. out a scrape here on her body and a and a bruise there and a furrow from the noose on mm -hmm. her neck. What do those mean? What are the two experts? How did they agree or differ on both sides? Mm -hmm. Who do we believe? So it could go on for another. Yeah, they could. They could easily take days yeah. to come to a verdict. Okay, um, days, not weeks. It's impossible yeah. to know. I mean, they if they want testimony reread, mm -hmm. it um, could take forever. It could take a long time. <laughs> yeah, well, and this, again, this being a civil case and not criminal, mm -hmm. they can reach a verdict uh, with a ten to two 
de- decision either okay. way. They don't need 12 in agreement like they I would see. have to in a criminal case. So, so it could go, so could be shorter. It could be faster mm-hmm. persuading 10 people to agree one way or the other. Right. But in your experience reporting in court, how did this, how do cases like this turn out? What's the verdict? Do you have any idea? Well, I mean, I've I've covered cases that end every which way, you mm-hmm. know, obviously convictions, acquittals, and and deadlocked to not agree. Sure. Um, it wouldn't surprise me at all if this jury deadlocked mm. that they couldn't get ten of them to agree that Adam Shacknai killed Rebecca Zahau. Mm-hmm. Um, they they don't they can't just agree that this looks fishy and it must have been a murder. Mm-hmm. They have to agree that Adam Shacknai was behind it. Right. So I personally, I could see it being deadlocked. Mm-hmm. And it's, then what, what happens then? Well, if, if they are firm that they cannot agree that they can possibly reach a decision by hearing any more testimony reread or seeing more evidence in the room, um, then the judge has to declare a mistrial. Mm. Um, she would thank the jurors for their service and excuse them, and they would be done after sitting there for a month. Wow. Um, then she has a discussion with the attorneys. At some point, the plaintiffs have to decide whether they want to try it again. Mm-hmm. Um, this has been an expensive proposition for the Zahau family right. to pay for all these experts to come into town and testify mm-hmm. uh, whether they could finance a second go and whether that's the only decision if they want justice and they don't believe they got it mm-hmm. um, they may not care how much more money they spend um, trying to get that justice um, the lawyers would probably be allowed to find out what the deadlock was what numbers were in favor of conviction and what number okay. were couldn't come to any opinion and what number wanted to acquit him. Mm-hmm. Um, those numbers could be important to the lawyers if it was... In determining whether to try it again. Right. If it was 9 to 3 in favor of conviction, well, that's pretty close mm-hmm. to the 10 to 2 they need, and that might encourage them to try again. Right. If only one person wanted to convict Adam or find him guilty... Mm-hmm. Um, that could sway it in the opposite direction. And, yeah. and it's the same in that regard as criminal cases. If, if, the, if a jury in a crime case deadlocks, the plaintiff's, or rather the district attorney's office, then has to decide, do we think we'd have a good chance with a different jury? Mm. What a complicated process. It is a complicated process. And you know there may have been issues, too, um, whichever, if one side loses this case, there may be appellate issues for the losers mm-hmm. to raise, which would sort of put the verdict on effectively on a hold in that okay. regard. Um, certainly, if if money damages were being sought, those wouldn't be paid until an appeals court mm-hmm. ruled right. on whatever point of law was was appealed, mm-hmm. and and that could certainly happen, which would. Um, Put it, put everyone, you know, still back on not knowing what's really going to happen. Yeah. Well, I guess it's just a wait and see game. It is indeed. <laughs> yeah. Um, until that jury walks in with a verdict, we just, yeah, it's a mm. big mystery what they might decide. Um, well, some alternates got seated on the regular jury as, a, mm-hmm. as at least one or two jurors um, dropped out and 
you know, there's no way to say that that would affect the mix of opinions because we don't know what the original ones would have mm-hmm. been, but it, it does change the dynamic a little bit. It's true. Anything else to add? Um, no, I think that brings us up to date. All right. We are getting down to the wire. We I are. Am definitely looking forward to finding out what happens. Um, well, thank you very much, Pauline. Thank you. We will see you next week. Next week. Be sure to subscribe to stay up to date. And if you can, please rate and review this podcast. It would really help us out and let us know what we can do better. If you have any questions, comments, information, notes, anything, please feel free to email me at lauren.flynn at sduniontribune.com. This week's Under the Gavel team includes myself, Lauren Flynn, as executive producer and editor. Reporting is by Gary Worth, Dana Littlefield, and Pauline Reppard. Our artwork is by Gloria Orbegozo and Christina Bivik, and John McCutcheon is our editorial director. For the San Diego Union Tribune, I'm Lauren Flynn. Thanks for listening. <laughs>